Hello, I'm Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin, Child and Adolescent Psychotherapist and Clinical Psychologist. This podcast is brought to you by the Association of Child and Family Development, a not-for-profit organization that aims to disseminate information about all aspects of child and family development to professionals and the wider community. We are concerned in these podcasts to go a little deeper into the whys and wherefores of child and family life. We're also trying to get away from a focus that's purely behavioral and strategy and quick fix based to look at what lies beneath and why things happen the way they do. You can find more information on our website at www.acfd.com.au. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Linda Chadwick, a pediatrician based in Perth, Western Australia. Um, Linda, you're going to tell us a little bit about your background. Yes, good morning, Ruth. Thank you for the opportunity to talk about my interests with you. I'll give a brief summary of my medical career. I finished medicine at the end of 1983 in Perth at UWA, University of Western Australia. Then I spent three years as a resident at one of our main hospitals in Perth, Royal Perth Hospital. After taking a 12-month break at the end of my residency, I obtained a resident position at um, Princess Margaret Hospital in 1998. I undertook training as a registrar there for the next 10 years and job shared for a number of those years while I had children, three children, and took various periods of maternity leave. Can I I start with asking you what brought you into the specialisation of paediatrics and what was of particular interest to you? Yes, I I didn't start off planning to do paediatrics. I think some people are very lucky in that they know exactly what they want to do, but that wasn't the case for me. Prior to starting medicine, I studied speech pathology And I really enjoyed it, but one of the aspects that was less appealing was the prospect of working with children. So I found that I really enjoyed working with children at Princess Margaret Hospital, as it was known at the time. And what really took most of my interest was the more complex social histories. And I found that I was able to sift through that and think about those issues in a clearer way. Um, But aside from that, I was encouraged to study further in paediatrics by a couple of mentors, mainly in gastroenterology, actually. So I probably have them to thank for pursuing a career in paediatrics. So it's, it's interesting when you said you weren't that keen to work with children, that you no. ended up working with children very uh, extensively, but perhaps from a more sort of um, scientific medical uh, perspective. Yes, yes. So, yes, it is interesting. I feel like I've gone a full circle. So um, once I'd obtained my fellowship in paediatrics, I started work in child development services And that started in 1996. So it's been a 35-year career in paediatrics and 25 years or so in child development services more specifically. 
I also then developed a very strong interest in attachment issues and um, started to undertake involvement with the um, Infant Mental Health Service and started attending conferences, which is where I think I first met you, Ruth. Um, and I started undertaking a lot of reading around these areas, which also I felt encouraged my own reflection about my own practices as a parent and how I dealt with difficulties emotionally. That's very, very interesting. I mean, it's a very wide ranging, um, uh, you know, sort of stepping out of perhaps formal paediatrics into looking at attachment, early infant parent relationships is very interesting. Now, I know you work both in the public sector and privately, and what does that involve? So currently I work three days a week uh, within the Child Development Service. So that's a public service. Um, it's funded by the state. We, we're very lucky here in that we have quite a unique child development service in that there are a number of locations around Western Australia in the metropolitan area, um, which all service the needs of child development. So it's a multidisciplinary um, centre. Each of these centres is multi, multidisciplinary with occupational therapy, clinical psychology, speech pathology, social work, and the various support members around that, including audiologists. So um, I also, in addition to that, have a very small private practice. So I work with a number of other people and we share a room, um, but we each work independently. I work there about a, one day a week and others that work there include a surgeon, an endocrinologist and another developmental paediatrician. So that involves getting referrals for children with school learning issues, developmental issues like language issues, uh, processing difficulties, attentional difficulties and possible autism. But we also see children who are referred simply with behavioural issues. So we've noticed, I think it's probably the case everywhere in Australia that referrals have increased, but in Western Australia, we're really struggling to meet the demand for referrals, both in the public sector as well as the private, as well as the private sector. Oh, that sounds very interesting. I'm just going back to your work in the public funded service. I mean, it sounds from the way you describe it, as you say, it's a, it's a multidisciplinary service. And that's particularly, um, that's enormously valuable because these days it, people tend to work in silos. You know, it's very, it's very unusual these days to find a centre where you will have medical services, paediatric services, psychology, audiology, OT, all of those things. It seems it's, it's exactly what is needed, particularly for children and parents. But increasingly, we get a kind of silo, separate focused way of working uh, with people working in isolation. I just wondered quickly if you have any thoughts about that. Oh, it's wonderful to um, perhaps share the load is, is the best way to word that. Um, and to have, we do have meetings probably once a month to talk about cases that might present difficulties or if one person feels that another allied health person or consultant needs to be involved, they can 
reference to the other person at these team meetings. Um, so it does give us a better sense of what's going on for the family. So another person might be able to offer information that I haven't been able to collect and to talk about how to uh, approach the management of these difficulties. So they might be um, more useful in more vulnerable families, but I think that we don't uh, perhaps coordinate those services as much as we used to. It is, it's always hard to have the time to allocate to those uh, team meetings. Yes, but it's, it's absolutely crucial, as you say, because you, you get all these different perspectives and children actually need different perspectives, don't they? Because they live in, at home, in the school, in a variety of settings. So it is absolutely, it's, it's so valuable. Yes. I'm aware. I, just I would to... just have to say, Ruth, that liaison with the school is also really, really important because it gives us another perspective on how the child is out of the home setting. And sometimes schools might perceive children quite differently. So yes. that's always really useful as well. Absolutely. I'm aware that you have an interest in the emotional underpinning of some physical presentations in children. And I was just thinking in that regard about the British psychoanalyst and paediatrician Donald Winnicott, who conducted sessions with children at the uh, Paddington Green Children's Hospital in London that were like brief therapies, even in one consultation. Do you ever find yourself doing something similar to that? Ah, uh, yes, that's an interesting question. Uh, sometimes, and sometimes you just have a little window where you can talk about that those issues with parents and they kind of are on the same page with you. They understand what you're talking about. So that's, that's always a lovely aha moment for both. And sometimes I think you can also just think with parents about, about what is the meaning behind some of the behaviours. And I'm not sure that I necessarily uh, get feedback that that's therapy, but sometimes parents might say to me when they come back next time, oh, this thing that you said has really made a difference for us. So you may not be aware of that at the time, but it may in your role as a doctor and, you know, often children hold you in quite significant esteem, you can talk about things that they might hear, but you're not aware that they're doing that at the time. So Absolutely. it is yes. an interesting journey. And sometimes you don't hear about that until well down the track. And sometimes you're, even though you may see children periodically, Sometimes you're perceived as a valuable member of their family who they can phone if there are difficulties and talk through difficulties with. And that's, that's important to have that availability, I think. Yes, absolutely. I suppose it's what the research tells us about the therapeutic alliance, yeah. which, which goes across all modalities, really, no matter what kind of work you do in, in yeah. any of the, the helping professions. Yeah. Um, you've mentioned your interest in attachment issues and your study of attachment issues, how do you think it's influenced your work as a paediatrician? Um, I think 
that there's a lot in those questions. I think part of it is when you read more about attachment issues, having had children myself, you, I think you become a lot more aware of how you respond to emotional situations. And I think reading about attachment issues, although you're reading about a third person, a lot of it can be taken on board as relevant to yourself. And it's interesting to understand in yourself how you react to situations um, and how you cope with those. So I think that's a starting base in that you recognise some things in yourself about what you have strengths in and about what you might find challenging. And it also allows you to sit with people in their difficulties and perhaps talk through those difficulties um, in a way that helps parents to reflect about their child a little bit more objectively and that may help them to understand the child's behaviour. Absolutely, yes. I mean, I also wonder, I know we're going to talk about this in a moment, but I wonder whether a number of the issues that are presented also perhaps that children present may have their origins in difficulties in attachment and bonding. You know, the attachment of the child to the parent and the bonding of the parent to the child. And that, you know, there's a certain sort of tendency to say we mustn't blame mothers. You know, mothers always get the blame. And it's not about blame, is it? It's really about trying to understand the, yeah. the nature of this very delicate and critical process. But it's also about, it's, it's not just about the mother and the child. It's about both parents and the child. So the father's very heavily involved in that as well. Yes, 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 yes. That's... A very good point, Ruth, and I couldn't agree more. And I often feel that the nature of our appointments in that they're time limited, people come along to us expecting a result after one hour because we're doctors and that's what we do. And it often doesn't allow us the time to explore attachment issues in the way that they really need to be explored. Um, now, I'm not, I think that we will get to talking about other issues and parents' requests perhaps a little bit down the track. But um, one of the difficulties, I think, with exploring attachment issues for paediatricians is that parents don't come to us as mental health professionals. They come to us for a diagnosis or a solution to their problem. And I, I, we will get to talk about this, but I think it is getting harder and harder to explore those other issues, such as parent mental health, parents' own history of trauma, parents' own lack of capacity to reflect about the child or to understand their behaviour. And I think... I, I still haven't worked out quite how best to manage that. Some parents are open to talking about that. Some parents are much more determined that they've come for an assessment for a particular diagnosis and they don't are not prepared to explore other mental health issues behind that. So we have to go with that. And some people are willing to consider referral to a psychologist and work with them. 
and other people are not so open to doing that. And there often is an assumption that we just refer these families to a psychologist. Um, but I don't think sometimes parents are not really in a place where they're ready to do that. And I think if people are not ready to consider mental health issues, referring them to a psychologist perhaps is counterproductive because if they go, which might be a proportion of the people that I recommend, sometimes they might see a person for one or two times and then say they don't want to pursue that. It, it, can, it perhaps presents something to them that's too confronting that they don't want to deal with. So it's always, it's always um, an area of difficulty for us. How do you address those attachment issues if you think that they're present um, in a family that are not really willing to go there? And sometimes I would have to say developmental paediatrics does give us time um, and it may not give us time at each session but you have time in that you might see them over a period of years and have the opportunity to explore that a little bit more perhaps when they trust you a little bit more and I am often surprised at what information comes up down the track. Well that's an enormous advantage actually I hadn't realized that you can have a, you can have years long yeah. contact yeah. with uh, with children because as yeah. you say this is about developmental pediatrics so that yeah. that is actually that's a very interesting point. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware that um, you set up, uh, I think with your colleagues, a modified autism assessment pathway to address the burgeoning numbers of children presenting with apparent autistic features. Can you tell us a bit more about the service? Yes, yes. So we, I'm sure we're not unique in Australia, we're getting a lot more referrals for autism. So in part, I think there's a lot more awareness of autism. There's a lot more awareness that there's a type of high-functioning autism that may present with very subtle features. And there's also a request for a diagnosis of autism to provide funding for services. So as a result, more people wonder if their children have autism and a small number of those people are quite coercive in their demand for a diagnosis of autism. So I think schools are making parents a lot more aware of the possibility of autism. And sometimes that's a genuine concern about autism. Sometimes parents get directed to consider a diagnosis of autism to provide funding to support the child's behavioural difficulties in the school setting. And some schools request that of parents quite assertively. So I'll talk about that. That's the rationale for developing this modified assessment pathway. Our traditional pathways were always with three people present at one appointment, sometimes with a social worker as well. And collectively, it was worked out that the assessment process was taking about 40 hours of consultant time, with if we included report writing, collecting of information from school, a school visit. So we tried to think about how we could streamline this process, 
especially for children that perhaps had more obvious features of autism? You know, did they really need to wait um, all the time? First of all, they had to wait to get access to a paediatrician to have a paediatric assessment before they were waitlisted for an autism assessment. So we've allocated paediatricians, and I'm one of them amongst others, that now make, I make a day a week available to undertake a paediatric assessment and say, yes, I think that this child does justify being referred onward for an autism assessment. And it, our idea is to gather the birth history, the developmental history, exclude other syndromes that may be causing autistic sort of features. Um, and now we then channel these children into a service which is much more streamlined. The reports are perhaps... Um, briefer than the previous reports, although still address criteria in a very thorough way, and uh, often still include feedback from the school. It may not include a school visit, but feedback from the school if appropriate. So we, these assessments are now taking about 14 hours. So we've been able to see a lot more children who are clearly autistic that need to be referred on to the NDIS. And that also means that these children aren't then sitting on uh, therapists' lists like speech therapy for years uh, before they can access any other services through the NDIS. Well, that's very efficient. I, I, it sounds as though in some ways Western Australia is quite ahead in, in some yes, quite I, dynamic about this that I have to say I haven't, I'm not sure that I've heard about that kind of service in Victoria. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's very interesting. I think the fact that we have a centralised child development service where we can do this perhaps facilitates that happening. Yes. Um, and we have had a lot of people that were very committed to modifying this process who were very experienced autism assessors who, who were able to tease out which kids really still needed a full comprehensive assessment that were perhaps a little bit more complex where there may have been attachment issues clouding the issue. Um, so we we worked at working out a way to make this work more efficiently. So down to fourteen hours as opposed to forty hours. Yeah, and like and, and and limiting the waiting list. I, I think there's a lot to learn here for for other states to really yeah um, uh, take a leaf out of your interesting books. Yeah, but yeah. you know, just looking at some of these issues from a slightly different point of view. I know that we share some concerns about the way in which children increasingly are given diagnostic labels. And, you know, these are not necessarily children who end up having the syndromes that they are often described as having. And the other thing that sometimes worries me is the, no the notion of having to get a, a, a label in order to obtain help from school. You know, you, you, the child has to be designated as being virtually incapable of doing anything just in order to get a, an aid. And then also, of course, funding from NDIS. Um, and I think we, we've also talked a bit about the huge number. I don't know if this is still the case, but it goes through a sort of fashion where there are large numbers of diagnoses of attention deficit disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. Do you think that sometimes there's almost, there's, there's too much diagnoses of these disorders? Um, do you think there how do these demands come about, do you think? Yes, that's a lot of questions, Ruth. Yes. 
whole lump together. Yeah, yeah. Let 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 me address perhaps the question of diagnostic labels. Yes. That um, I think that's what we originally started this conversation about. So the diagnosis of ADD, attention deficit disorder, or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, if there's hyperactive features, that was never a diagnostic label that was sought in order to obtain funding. I think I recall 20 years ago working, children did get some funding through Centrelink for a carer's allowance. I think they may it may have been easier to get that for a diagnosis of attention deficit disorder. But it's a different process now in terms of seeking labels. Um, and this term labels never used to be in existence. And somehow, perhaps more so over the last five years, parents come to me seeking labels. And I'm not sure where this term has come from, but there's two different funding issues. One is the school. So at least in Western Australia, and I think from what I've heard, it's more rigid here than in other parts of Australia. The school um, education assistance uh, disability fund, resource funding is provided for children that have a specific difficulty. So the funding used to be provided for kids that struggled at school. Um, and it wasn't uh, given for particular diagnoses. And then it changed, gee, maybe 10 years ago, where the funding would was limited to children with specific diagnostic labels. And those labels were an intellectual disability, global developmental delay, autism, or significant mental health issues. Um, mental health issues can't be diagnosed by a paediatrician. They have to be diagnosed by a mental health professional like a psychiatrist. So as a result of this, what we've seen is that children to diagnose the global developmental delay or an intellectual disability, there are objective tests and children either meet those criteria or they don't. So those, they're less negotiable. But what I've experienced is if children don't have an intellectual disability, the school then raise the question of whether a child has autism because many children with developmental difficulties do some autistic sort of things. So they might avoid eye contact, they might struggle with their peers, they might struggle socially for a number of different reasons. And some of those are autism and some of those issues are attachment issues, some are related to language issues, some are related to poor modelling of socially appropriate behaviour. But all of these issues kind of now get lumped into the possible diagnosis of autism. So go and see the paediatrician to get a label. And then some parents say they've even been told quite bluntly by schools that your child won't get any help unless you have a label. So they come to us requesting a label. Um, and it's it just has a feeling of a lot more of a commodity base, you know, like you go to a shop and you you buy your you buy your commodity and then you get service. Now, so that's the school, but also for the NDIS, the NDIS have similar uh, acceptance criteria 
Um, so they also will provide funding for significant developmental issues. And again, more or less the same sort of issues with the same sort of acceptance criteria, although they will also provide funding for significant medical issues as well, such as cerebral palsy, um, children with significant syndromes and disabilities that have a significant functional impairment component. Um, so that, I think, is what's behind the huge demand for assessments for autism. And it's often the first thing that comes to parents' mind is, you know, in order to move on and think about my child's difficulties, we now have to exclude autism. And it's almost as if the process is happening in reverse. Yes. So then attention deficit disorder is probably a, a different... Um, it's a different problem in that parents are not seeking a diagnosis of attention deficit disorder, primarily for funding issues. Uh, so, but they do wonder if a child has hyperactive, poorly focused behaviour, if that's related to significant attention deficit disorder as well. Now, some of those issues, so an inattentive child may be anxious, they may have slow processing difficulties. Um, they may be preoccupied. They may have absence-type epilepsy. And the hyperactive children may also be sort of poorly attached children, children who show oppositional behaviour or uh, defiant or poorly organised behaviour. So it's a different kind of problem. Yes. Do, do you think that the demand for diagnoses, as you've described it, has actually changed the way you practice over the years? Um, I mean, perhaps you've explained that already in terms of the demands yeah, of the school and, yeah, and where yeah, the child finds yeah. themselves. Yeah. I think that I've certainly got longer wait lists and many of us in Western Australia have had to close our books. We're just not taking on new patients because mm -hmm. we are just so overwhelmed. And some of the, the referrals I get are query ASD, query ADD, query ODD. It, it, it's, a, it's an interesting way to say that you need an appointment. It's just very odd. Um, so it hasn't changed the way I do assessments. But sometimes what I find is parents come along and the point of them making the appointment is they want to look at the possible diagnosis of autism. So I, I often have to explain to them that that's really not in the child's best interest to just simply launch into a, doing an assessment for autism instead of looking at what might be behind some other developmental difficulties. Because sometimes when I've done that in the past, I say to parents, and um, so you have to spend at least 30 minutes with parents sort of looking at the autism criteria and then 20 minutes or so with a child getting a sense of their dyadic interaction. And then, you know, that's our one-hour appointment. And then I say to parents, well, I don't think your child has autism. And they 
in the past have said to me, well, what's the problem then? What is it? If it's not autism, what is it? And I have to have, say, well, I, I can't answer that because we've done the assessment for autism because that's what you wanted. And I think often parents really don't understand the complexity of the questions that they're asking. And I think there's an assumption that we can just have a look at a child and decide whether it's autism or not. But really, it's a complex diagnostic process and we have to look at a lot of unusual questions, a lot of odd questions that are not relevant to other developmental diagnoses. So more recently, I've really tried to resist doing that. And I often will say to parents, look, we're better off having a, a look at all of your child's development, talking about their beginning, their birth, their developmental process, because of that, all of that has an impact on where they're at now. And then if I feel there are significant autistic sort of issues, we'll have to explore that at another appointment. So that's perhaps changed how I do assessments now. Um, we need at least two, uh, two assessments to really cover all of those questions and to get a good, reasonable understanding of what's going on. That, that makes so much sense, Linda, because I, I worry that singling out the child for a diagnosis in a way prematurely may in some cases cover up dysfunctional family relationships and even trauma. Yeah. I, I also wonder whether we fail at the very early point in terms of providing support for parents and really conveying enough information about ordinary child development. You know, and I think the other aspect is that very often parents present themselves as though they are the last people who have any knowledge about their child. Yeah. Um, when in fact they have to be helped to be the first people to have knowledge about their child. And I, I remember really from my own work in, in parent support that we, we, one of the sort of mantras we had was to help parents own what they know. Yeah. You know, rather than uh, then them pushing aside their anxiety or their concerns or whatever their thoughts were and thinking that the professional would tell them or give, an, yeah. give them an answer about their child. Yeah. So I, I wonder whether, you know, would you agree, I suppose it seems very, a very obvious question, that parents need support much earlier in the piece to help their children and themselves, and most particularly in these COVID and post-COVID times, which yeah. has thrown up so much um, pain and suffering for so many families. Yeah. yeah. Yes, there's a lot of questions embedded in that little paragraph too, Ruth. Perhaps I'll address your the second part of your question. In that, um, yes, I my impression is again over the last few years that parents feel more disempowered about what they know about their children. And there's this sense that they have to get it right, as if there is a right way of doing this. And rather than kind of sitting back and listening to their child and engaging in a dialogue with their child, they're busy trying to get it right mm -hmm. um, in terms of their development. And development really is so encoded in our DNA that, you know, perhaps after many years of being a parent myself, I came to realise that it actually happened and you just had to be the scaffolding around that. And I think a lot of parents feel very disempowered from that. And 
um, there's so much information. It's almost as if parents are seeking too much information instead of just sitting and enjoying their child because every child is so different as well. And even in the same family, every child will be so different and create their own micro environment in the family with their parents and with each parent individually as well. And I think it's what makes families so complex but such a source of uh, fertility in terms of developing relationships or the potential to be very fertile. Um, so, yes, I think particularly for younger children, you know, children up to two, there is so much to be gotten right and so much to be gotten wrong. And um, parents do feel that they have to get this right rather than enjoying and understanding the process. And I also wonder how much now parents sit and play with their children and really get onto the child's level and just enjoy play, whatever that play is, because it's my sense now that entertainment for children is uh, electronic media and there's a lack of capacity for tolerating boredom, which I think is often the beginning of creative play and having that sense that you had to go and find something to do yourself outside or muck around outside. I think children are really perhaps spending a lot less time doing those things because they're entertained electronically and disengaged from the parent in that process. Um, and your earlier part of that question is singling out a child for a diagnosis that might cover up um, a dysfunctional family relationship. Uh, I would have to say, Ruth, that I think that's a great concern amongst most paediatricians is what are we missing? What are people not telling us? We can ask, but people tell you what they want you to hear and they want to present themselves in a good light and they might tell their story in a way that may not really reveal a lot of what's really happening and going on um, and you're getting that information from one point of view so I think that we all worry that we are perhaps channeled into making a decision or a diagnosis when that not, may not be all of the picture. Yes. You, know, you, you just mentioned a couple of very profound things, one of which is that uh, development is encoded in the DNA. Mm. And, and you've also said that parents seem to think that the the development of the child is there, is dependent on them. Yeah. You know, and, uh, you know, I think what when you see the, the baby at birth, you, yeah. you have this extraordinary realisation that the baby is going to grow despite you yes. or yes. oneself. Yes. You know, the yes. baby's intention and absolute focus in life is growth and development. It yes. cannot be stopped. It, yes. As you say, it's totally encoded. Yes. But you have a sense, I think, with parents not... It's not that they, they seem to have a lot of information these days without understanding certain basic truths. Yes. Um, and I think that's one of them. And the other is that because behaviour is encoded, they treat or they don't recognise that. They think that the child is an empty vessel into which they have to pour all of their 
um, uh, attitudes, help, and whatever, and which, and, and which leaves them panic-stricken and very anxious. But none of that is required. And I suppose from what you're saying, the parent's job is to elicit what is already there, to yeah. create what Winnicott calls the facilitating environment for what is already implicit in the child. Yeah. yeah. The child is not an empty vessel. Everything is functioning quite brilliantly in most cases. So it's really a question of being able to, to elicit that. Yeah. And I, I was also just thinking about your point about play. And I think one of the, you know, I was just going to say, well, the problem is that parents spend all their time playing on their phones. I know. You know, so the, one of the difficulties about play is that um, uh, the, the sort of technology that parents are interested in is also the technology that children are interested in. So the difference between what children and parents would see as play is now so narrow. They're, in, they're basically almost competing in the same area. Yeah, yeah. You know, the opportunities for something that's free and, um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed as a grandparent looking after occasionally two little boys that really they, they, they can just take a cardboard box and turn it into something fascinating. They don't need, I've ceased buying toys for them because they have so many at home, but I know that they can, they can be creative with something that's really quite small. Yes. So I, I think what you're saying is very profound. Yeah. Um, I just wonder in that connection, in terms of what parents need, there are these terribly long waiting lists and how can we address the problem or is there any way of helping parents to just understand parenting? Mm. Would that help to stop their need to feel that they've got to have some sort of defined diagnosis? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's probably a reflection of our whole society really, isn't it, that uh, Advertising has been so effective in that what we have is not enough and what we, the resources that we have to offer our child, which is our time and our affection and our engagement, is not enough. You have to buy stuff to do that. Where, and I think it's been profoundly effective that you are not enough for your child. Um, but I think also, I mean, there are resources there, you know. Um, there are lovely uh, programs that I've seen about the baby's capacity for engagement that they come with a set of skills that endears them to us and engages us with them and, and it's all there, you know, and it's just... I think maybe parents don't see that because they're so busy looking at other things, looking at things on their phone while they're breastfeeding. It, um, there are resources there. The other concern I think is that um, I think as a community, we, we don't look after one another. And I think, you know, perhaps... 50 years ago, there were a number of community resources, you know, perhaps churches serve that community, perhaps community groups, volunteer activities, matched people of different ages and levels of experience and children of different ages together so that there was a getting of knowledge in that 
in that sharing of different ages and groups of people. But I think we've probably lost that because we've all got busier and a lot there's a lot less community resources that are available. So I think that was perhaps, um, you know, perhaps as a society we've, we've lost some of that, um, which would have supported parents. Um, Perhaps also uh, families. I, I forgot what was the other part of your question. Yes, I was, I'm just sorry, just taking that further. I think also families have become rather disconnected. Yeah, I mean, I'm often quite surprised in my clinical work to hear that um, parents don't have the support of their parents. Yeah, and and extended family. So people seem to, and then there's there are also situations in which sometimes parents don't want to parent the way they were parented. Yeah. Um, so they want to totally get away from that. And so they end up with a lot less support generally yeah, and yeah. become more and more isolated. Yeah, yeah. Yes, I would agree with that, Ruth. Uh, it's part of our, our sort of nuclear family setup, and sometimes we have less than a nuclear family if there's a single mother with children or a single father with children and parents may not be together. And you kind of wonder how much the parent-child relationship can sustain when it isn't scaffolded by committed relatives who are also having a significant input into the child's ongoing well-being. That's right. I, I like your word scaffold. You know, I think that's, that is so, yeah. so appropriate, isn't it? Yes, yes. You know, and maybe it could reassure parents that they don't need to be um, the perfect parent. They can be Winnicott's good enough parent yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they need to provide a scaffold yeah you know, and then the child can fill in the rest as it were yes and other yes. people can fill in the rest of yes. the, you know create the buildings yes. somehow yes. yes perhaps it's there's a lack of tolerance for um maybe carers or grandparents or other family members not doing uh care in the way that the parents idealize and parents are not tolerant of, of different ways of doing things with their child, whereas perhaps children in the past were more exposed to different forms of parenting. Um, maybe parents are more concerned about the possibility of some abuse in the community. Perhaps that's uh, more publicly prevalent and aware. I think your point about COVID um, has certainly had an impact on families in that even those that did have those resources that was limited by lockdowns um, in COVID times and, you know, mothers having to work and school children at home, that's really, that's really, if you like, narrowed all of those resources that were potentially available anyway. And hopefully we can recover from that with the lack of lockdowns and reconnections with family members and things. So... Hopefully yes. that can be repaired to some extent. Yes. I, I was just thinking in connection with that, um, I heard the results of a recent study on the impact of COVID on people's mental health. Yeah. And that showed that the people most affected were women with young children who had to carry the burdens of caring for the children, homeschooling and domestic duties, as well as their own jobs. And I wonder, doesn't this tell us something about the need for fathers to become more directly involved? Because it, it wasn't saying that the father's mental health 
was badly affected. I mean, maybe it was, and maybe they didn't ask the questions. Yeah. But you do wonder, and, and I, I wonder in that connection whether you find fathers are attend your practice. Are they really involved or is it very mother-centric? Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, that's a, that's a very good point. I love it when fathers come. And I love it when fathers come that know things about their children. And I'm impressed by how many I see that understand their child's emotional world. And you have a very sincere conversation with them about where their child's up to. And that's always such a delight because I think when fathers are involved, I think children get access to an alternative type of parenting, which is so important for them. Um, because fathers, I, I think fathers parent very differently from mothers. And, you know, the child can benefit from both of those points of view. And I think children that have that must feel very powerful in the world. I think that it must be an incredibly powerful feeling for a little baby to sit on their father's shoulder and be the king of the world because you would feel so tall. And I think that that's the gift that fathering gives children is that gift of power and you're strong and the gift of um, Trevor Perry, who really established our child development service, he talked about fathers giving the gift of personhood and um, fathers allow children, they say, go on out into the world and do your best. You know, I'm here behind you and you've got me to stand on. Whereas mothers will tend to um, create the fabric of a stable, regular home life, which is almost, which is just as important in that it provides the continuity and the safe home environment for the child. But I think fathers tend to be more the ones that say, go out there and try and, you know, succeed as a person. And they give the, the gift of separation, I guess. Um, but yes, some, having said that, I get some fathers who come along with the list of problems given them by their mother or by the child's mother, and they don't have much of a clue about what's going on. But they're still there. They're still there on behalf of their child. And, you know, I think even if parents are separated, um, it's really nice when you can see the mum or the dad on different occasions and talk about the child's progress. And then you get some fathers who are more alienated who don't seem to be as engaged. So... Um, yeah, I am pleased that the commitment of many fathers that I do, I do meet. I, I think that's always um, a gift. Great. And now finally, uh, Linda, I wonder if you can give us some pointers um, about when to worry, which is a, it's quite a big ask. I know in these days of what is called helicopter parenting, everything the child does can be perceived as a matter of concern. Yeah. But sometimes paradoxically, people can overlook behaviours and problems that really do need to be addressed. Yeah. So I, I just wondered if, in, you know, a bit of a summary of the of you know when when it's when it's time to worry. Yeah. And to think yeah. about things. Yeah. Worry about developmental issues. Is and that or any other issue that you can think of. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a bit broad. <laughs> it's a big ask. Um, well, I'll take that question from a developmental point of view because obviously there's a whole lot of medical concerns and things like that, which, which is not where we're going today. But I think developmentally, 
Um, you, you start to see that um, the learning on, and of separation about 12 to 18 months. And I think that for many kids, things go along until they get to 12 or 18 months, which is when they're starting to learn autonomy. They're, the challenge of separating from the parent is starting to take place and they're learning to manage feelings of shame that go with that separation. And I think probably we never think about those feelings of shame enough because they're often what underpin a lot of the attachment difficulties. And I think that many children never learn to recognise the feeling of shame that often is the beginning of feelings of anger and behavioural disruptions. And so I... That, that's probably one of the things that most concerns can, me. Can you say a bit more about shame? Because I, I find that very interesting. What, what do you mean about the child feeling shame? Yeah. So yeah. I think, as I understand it, when the child starts to learn to physically separate from the parent, they can... They're learning autonomy. And they're learning to manage a distance between the, themselves and the parent. But at that time, they have to also learn that there are limits to what they can do. And children will learn those limits from watching their, their parents' facial expression. For example, if they're engaging in, a, in an activity that might become dangerous, for example, climbing along a wall, along a step, they will read from their parents' face that there's worry and that will serve as a factor that limits their exploratory behaviour. Now, some children, I, and that the setting of that limit can incur a feeling of shame because there's a negative, uh, a negative um, feeling, perhaps is the best word, between the parent and the child. And the child has to learn to recognise that feeling and manage it. And I think that's the beginning of when we learn to manage anger or negative feelings. And I think if our parent isn't able to help us negotiate that in a tolerable way, and the parent may not be able to do that because of their own anxiety, because of their own separation issues, because of their own attachment issues, I think that's when a lot of these developmental attachment patterns can start to become awry. It's, it's, I think that's a fascinating comment that you make because yeah. it's really also the beginnings, but it's certainly a, a, not, not just the beginnings, but this, it's really the point at which socialisation occurs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, And you're talking about the setting of limits and boundaries, which is an, in a very critical part of, yeah. of child-rearing. Yeah. And one of the difficulties sometimes is that parents seem to, they get taken aback or angry about the young child's, um, you know, writing on the walls or kicking them yeah. or getting angry yeah. or behaving badly. Yes. And they seem to think that, you see, we talked about the, the, the process of DNA, but the one thing, though, that, that cannot be accounted for simply by DNA is the socialisation process. Yeah. It's not going to happen automatically. And yeah. that absolutely requires the interactive process between the parents and the child. Yes. And I, I don't know how many parents I've met 
over the years who've told me, well, they're, they're much too young. Um, yes. You know, they don't they don't set limits and boundaries. Yes. And and then you want you ask, you wonder, well, what are you waiting for? You're waiting for them to be 10 or 15 years old. Yes. This is the point at which you really have to begin, perhaps even earlier. I don't mean that in a restrictive sense. So yes. I think what you're saying is very, I think a lot of the behavioural um, oppositional defiance type behaviors that people describe. I even think the ADD um, syndromes, so many of them, in my experience, emerge out of this very, very early experience that is misunderstood, as, as you're explaining so well. Yes. yes. I think that um, I agree with that, Ruth, and there's a lot to be talked about with this. Um, but I think from what I've seen of parents, particularly with younger children, is they feel a reluctance to impose limits on the child. And I think that's perhaps how parenting has been advertised, that the child should have a free reign for a long period of time. Um, I don't know for how long. Um, and that for the parent to set limits on the child is negative and will have a negative impact on the child. And it, it is... I do try and explain to parents that that's part of their job as a parent is to keep the child safe and to help the child to understand that there are limits for all of us around what we can do, what we have permission to do. But that doesn't have to be done in a punitive and destructive way. It can be done in a very healthy way with compassion. And I think if the parents in is in a, a reasonably okay place themselves for their mental health, they should be able to impose those limits in a sensible but a kind way. And that's what the circle of security really talks about as well. Um, you know, being a safe base for the child to come back to after it's explored and also being the parent that says, no, this is not okay to take this any further. And I think that's so crucial to the child learning to accept limits because so many children I see now, um, whatever age, they, they have a meltdown or they get frustrated or they get angry when a limit is set. And I think this is really all about the fact that they've never learned to negotiate shame, they've never learned how to manage that in a supported environment with a scaffolding kind parent who helped them to do that. Um, and I think it's behind what so much of the behavioural difficulties that we see, the you know, the oppositional behaviour. So just back to your question, it, which is when do I worry? I really, that really worries me if I see a two-year-old who really struggles when they're challenged or when they're limited. If they respond with angry, coercive behaviour at that age, I worry that something is not going right there. And I think that that's really an important point to intervene and help the parent to help the child to regulate that feeling of distress and anger and shame. I think that's so important and you put it so beautifully. You see, I also wonder whether it's connected with a sense of authority, with a confusion on the part of the parent. They have to use authority 
And yeah. I confuse that with being authoritarian. Yeah. And a lot of parents have had experiences where their own parents have used authority in a very arbitrary way. Yeah. You know, they've sworn at them or they've hit them or yeah. they've um, sort of negated their even their very existence yeah. and they've behaved in a very authoritarian manner. Yeah. Yeah. So if you, if you talk about authority, that's immediately where they go back to. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, one of the, you know, very often parents will say to me, that, that, that a child will confront them and say, I can do whatever I like because you're not the boss of me. Yeah. And one of the things I try and help suggest to them when talking about authority is to say, well, actually, uh, you know, sadly or not, this is not true because if anything happens to you, I have to be in the court, I will be in the court of law because I will be held responsible. And because I'm responsible, I have authority. And, yeah. and for parents to feel comfortable with the use of authority, not being authoritarian, and and sometimes it's an it's such an eye opener, and they feel they can really then have a different relationship with their child. But yeah. I think you're so right about you know when to worry. I think that's a big big area. Yeah. And yeah. yes, so so I, I, important. I, I, I love that statement, and you hear that so much from children, don't you? You're not the boss of me, you know. And it's almost an invitation. You know, I would read that as please be the boss of me. Totally. You know, um, I, I want to do what I want, but I know that it's not really safe for me to do that. So please be the boss of me. Um, and there's so many different ways of doing that. It's um, And I think humour is so important, isn't it, to hear what the child is saying, but then to respond to that in a way that makes them feel safe. Absolutely, but, yes. Yeah. And it's not so much about being in court, is it? But it's about being the bigger and the stronger parent and saying, well, I am the boss of you, you know, because because that's what's needed here. And you, have, you yes. have certain freedoms, but I have certain responsibilities and we have to merge them together. Yes, yes. Well, that's fantastic, Linda, and, and so very profound and really helpful comments. So thank you so very much. Um, that's That's really tremendous. Thank you. Hello, this is Dr. Ruth Schmidt-Nevin again. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. You may be interested to know about my audio trainings based on the many trainings I have run throughout Australia and overseas. These include training on relationships, attachment and the brain, time-limited psychodynamic psychotherapy and skill building in therapeutic work. You can access the details of all my trainings on my website, which is at www.centerforchildandfamily.com. That's A-N-D, so www.centerforchildandfamily.com. Thank you.